night. So as we continue in worship, if you guys would open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 6. And this week we will be in verse 27 of Luke chapter 6. I'll give you a moment to turn there. And once you're there uh, in Luke chapter 6, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 6 and verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs for you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, of what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. So as we uh, are continuing in our exposition of the Gospel of Luke, we find ourselves now with some of probably the most misunderstood and some of the most difficult to hear teaching in all of Scripture. These words are not difficult to hear because they are harsh words, they're difficult to hear because they are difficult to live out. These commands that come from the lips of Jesus are exposing to our hearts and to our sin natures. And so as we dive into these verses together, uh, I just want to acknowledge on the front end that these are things that uh, we often fall short of as Christians. Uh, the ambition for these verses is that we cover them in two weeks' time. So this week and then next week, uh, we will cover all of verse 27 through verse 36. Uh, the ambition for tonight is simply to cover the first two verses, verse 27 and verse 28. And the title of that study is going to be Defining Kingdom Love. Defining Kingdom Love. And as we ask the question... How is it that we can define love according to the scriptures? We want to very carefully consider that idea because how we understand the word love is how we're going to understand how to live out the rest of those commandments. And if we misunderstand what he means when he says love, we might completely miss the point of these verses. So as we engage in these verses together, uh, we're going to try to, as best as we are able, with our limited uh, knowledge and even our limited time, and try to understand what it means when he says for us to love 
our enemies. So I'm going to start first and foremost in verse 27. And again, we're just going to do two verses tonight, and so we will be moving slowly through them. Uh, but we're going to start there in verse 27 with the words, But I say to you who hear. And Jesus is addressing in these verses the group of people that he was kind of not referencing last week, but he was referencing several weeks ago. So if you remember in verses 20, 21, and 22 of Luke chapter 6, he refers to a group of people who are blessed. These people are blessed because they are poor. They are blessed because they are hungry. They are blessed not because of their current circumstances and conditions. They are blessed because of what awaits them in the life to come. They are blessed because they are sons and daughters of God and they are identified with his kingdom. In the last two weeks, we discussed the group of people who is referred to as being under the wrath of God, those people who are receiving the woes, those who are being warned to deviate from their path because in the future, that path leads them to destruction. And this week in verse 27, he pivots back to that first group of individuals and he says, but I say to you who hear. And that reference to you who hear might be familiar to you if you've spent some time in the Gospels. Jesus often will tell parables. And then when he explains his parables, he says to his disciples, Do you not yet understand? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he's referring not to the audible ability to hear. Everyone who was around Jesus could hear his voice and understand how the words and the sentences were put together. What he's referring to is that group of individuals that can spiritually understand or hear what is the truth behind what is being said. The Pharisees were unable to discern the truth of what he was saying. Many of his disciples are often unable to discern the truth of what he is saying. And here he turns once again and says, but I say to you who hear. Referencing the group of people that is able to perceive and to understand not by their own cognitive abilities or by their own reason or their own intellect, but who is able to understand by the grace gift of the Spirit. When Simon Peter is able to identify Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, Jesus says to him, not what a brilliant man you are, Simon, for putting these things together and assembling all the prophecies of the Old Testament. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Your neural synapses have not put things together that no one else could understand. Blessed are you because the Spirit of God has revealed these things to you. And so just as Simon Peter required the Spirit to see and to hear and to perceive who Christ was, so too do all of the disciples and followers of Jesus need to spiritually discern the things that are said. Blessed are those who hear these words. And Jesus is speaking specifically to them to encourage them and to give them instructions on how they ought to live within the kingdom. What is interesting about these verses, as popular as they are in contemporary culture, and as often as you will hear Christians reference sayings like we find in these texts, for example, in verse 31, if you'll turn your eyes there, it says, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. That is a saying we are very familiar with in our culture. As often as those kinds of sayings are repeated and are talked about and are lifted up as virtuous things, what's interesting is that these are not things that the world is capable of. By addressing in verse 27 to those who hear, Christ is explicitly narrowing down the group of people who he's addressing 
to those who are within the kingdom, those who have the spirit, who can discern and can understand these things. He's narrowed his scope so that the only people who could do these things or could carry out these commands are part of the kingdom. You'll notice also something significant about these verses, which is that the gospel is nowhere present in verse 27 all the way through verse 36. Now, I say the gospel isn't present. What I don't mean is the gospel is not necessary for those verses. This teaching doesn't make sense apart from Jesus Christ and his work on this earth. But the gospel itself is not on display in these verses. If you love your enemy and you do good to those who do evil to you, that is not the gospel. That is not the good news. That is not what Christians are taught to preach. So then what is the significance that is contained in these verses? These verses primarily address how we ought to live within the kingdom. If we are sons and daughters of the king, if we are blood-bought Christians, if we are part of Christ's kingdom, this is our commandments. These are the things that we ought to do as Christians. These are not things we do to earn our way into the kingdom. These are things that we do because we are already part of the kingdom. Jesus addresses it to those who hear, which means that everything that follows that statement is addressed to sons and daughters of the king, people who are adopted into the kingdom of God. And so then, for those of us who are within the kingdom of God, those following verses offer a scathing review of our lives. And they hold us very close to the magnifying glass and examine very closely our lives And if you are anything like me as I was reading these verses, you are aware of how short you fall of what's laid out here in these texts. For us to love our enemies, for us to not seek our own interest, for us to do good to the people who hate us, and for us to even pray for people who would seek to abuse us. All of those things are so against what it is to be human. So against the natural condition of who we are that it stands in the face of our natural inclinations. If you hear these words and you have lived in reality for any length of time, you would see these things as completely foolish. And you would be right to say so. Because to seek the benefit of those who scorn you and hate you is not a wise decision. It is not even a virtuous decision. Often we look at these words and we we prop up verse 31 as somehow it is a virtuous thing for us to seek the benefit of those who would not seek our own benefit. For us to do to other people what we want them to do to us as if somehow there's a mysterious force in the world that when we do good things to others, it returns good things to us. That is not a Christian belief at all. We do not believe in karma or in the belief that if we put good out into the world, good will come back to us. That is not a Christian belief. So then what is the point of what Jesus is saying? Why does he tell his disciples to do things that would be social suicide, if you will, that would cause them to live lives that are not wise, that would cause them to do things that seem foolish in the eyes of the world? Why does he call them to do that? Well, he doesn't call them to do that because it's virtuous. He calls them to do that because to do so is to imitate 
the God whom they serve. These verses that lay out for us the kingdom ethic of living, the kingdom ethic of how we love, if we're trying to define that term, kingdom love, these verses lay out for us how first God came and loved humanity. And if you'll just look with me at those first two verses, I just want to read them again and and think in your mind about how this is exactly how God loves sinners. It says, first and foremost, to love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Isn't it interesting how all of those things are fulfilled by both the God of the Old Testament and Jesus Christ in the New Testament? How the enemies of God are the very ones who Jesus Christ comes to die for? How the people who hate Jesus Christ are the very ones he comes into this earth to save? How God in the Old Testament looks upon his rebellious and sinful Israelite people whom he rescued from slavery and he blesses them. He says that it will go well for them and he redeems them and he gives them a covenant and he puts his favor upon them and he blesses them. And how Jesus Christ intercedes so often for his disciples to pray for those who would later scorn him and mock him and even abandon him. And Jesus does this as a manifestation and an embodiment and an an initial example for us of how we ought to do the same. So this is only possible, not because it is virtuous, but because it is an imitation of God. Ephesians 5, verse 1, Paul will tell us to imitate Christ, to imitate God. And that doesn't mean a cheap imitation. That doesn't mean to be a phony kind of formation of God's virtue. It means that as Christians, we are being conformed into the image of the Son of God into the image of Jesus Christ. And what that means on the ground is that the very same way that Christ lives out his life, the very same way that Christ dies to self and submits his will to the will of the Father, that is the exact same thing that all believers are called to do. And no other God of any other religion can say that that is something that they have done. Every other God demands that their people do something for them But no other God has gone before their people as the example for how to do the very things that he asks them to do. There is no God of any religion who can rightly say that they love their enemies. The gods of other religions are potentially just. They are potentially vindictive, and rightly so. For for example, people sin against those gods, do they not? But there is no God of any other religion across the world that could rightly say that they have come down to this earth to love their enemies, to offer peace to the very ones who would scorn them. There are many gods who we have conceived of as being just. There are many false gods who we have conceived of as being so loving that they have no justice. They just accept everyone into their arms. But there is only one God described in this book as being both perfectly holy, perfectly just, and yet fully loving towards his enemies. And that is the God who we would profess to worship as Christians. And so these commands that are laid out here are things that we are trying to do to imitate Christ who has gone before us, to live out the kingdom ethic which he has come first 
to show us by his incarnate body how to do. So these are not things that we do in a vacuum, apart from our understanding of who Christ is and what he came to do first and foremost. So then I would like to maybe examine that term love and explore what we think of when we think of love. Because how we understand that is going to inform a lot of how we understand Jesus. This, this word love, to love people, is something that John the Apostle uses. John the brother of Jesus uses. James uses the word love. Paul uses the term love. Jesus uses the term love all the time. So how we understand that term, what we think of in our mind when we conceive of that term, is going to vastly inform what we think is being said in these verses and throughout the entire New Testament. What uh, one of my seminary professors would say is the, the things that we draw up in our minds, the images and the pictures and the understandings that we have of words, what could be referred to as something like an encyclopedia. And our experiences and our, our path through life and the kinds of encounters that we've had with other people and the kinds of training that we've had and the kinds of education that we've had, all of those things inform what we think of when we think of various terms. So, for example, us who've grown up in the West and who live here, when we think of the term love, it draws up a certain kind of image in our mind that's pretty consistent across our culture. What we typically think of when we think of the term love is a primarily emotional kind of thing. When we think of love, we think of a set of feelings, maybe warmth, maybe benevolence. We think of love as a positive kind of general disposition that we feel towards other people. If you've ever heard someone describe themselves as loving something, what that means is typically that they enjoy it or that they favor it or that it gives them some kind of pleasure so they also like it as well. You can hear about someone liking a certain song or liking or loving a particular kind of food. And those words are very synonymous in our culture. Love and like and preference and favor. Those are what we think of when we think of the term love. And this even extends into how we would consider ourselves as loving other people. We would say that we potentially love people who also generally love us back, who treat us fairly, who treat us equally, who have general benevolence towards us, who have maybe given us some kind of preference in one way or another. Those are the kinds of people we love. And we associate with people that we love. And when I use that term love, I'm using it how we use it as a culture. An emotional kind of thinking. That's what draws up in our background, in our, in our thoughts. Unfortunately for us, we're going to have to do a lot of work to understand what Christ means when he says love. Because the biblical understanding of love is not primarily emotional. Love is not primarily something you feel in scripture. Love in scripture is primarily something that you do, a way of conduct. If you like, the general description of love in the Old Testament and is affirmed in the New Testament is what we would refer to as covenantal love. It is love that is not emotional, but it is behavioral. It is an action-driven kind of love. It's not primarily a feeling. It is primarily a resolution to behave in a certain kind of way, often in spite of feeling. And God doesn't just command us to love in that way. He is actually the primary example of how to love in that way. And if you think about that for just a moment, 
The difference between emotional love and covenantal love is the very reason why Israel as a nation was spared. It's the very reason why the world itself still exists. And it's the very reason why you and I were spared while we were sinners against God. Because love for God is not emotional. Love for God is covenantal. It is committal. If you think about the kinds of emotions that people draw out of God, when we are anthropomorphizing in Scripture and we're trying to describe how God responds to people, we would describe God, and if you look in the Old Testament, you can see this description all over the place, that God often is described as regretting having made sinful humanity. That would be how we would try to describe, from an emotional standpoint, God's response towards human sinfulness. God is described as being wrathful towards sin. That is a right response or a reactionary response towards humans. In fact, in, in the days right before we meet Noah in Genesis, it says that humanity was only evil continuously and every thought of their mind was evil. And God regretted that he had made mankind. That is describing a kind of reactionary, if you like, emotional response. But that does not define God's love thankfully. Because if God's love was emotional in the way that our love is understood to be emotional, we would not have survived very long in human history. Instead, the primary word used to describe love in the Old Testament is the word for covenantal love, or what is often translated as the steadfast love of God. And that love transcends emotion, and it puts the primary focus on a consistency of commitment. A commitment not towards how people react or how people behave, but a commitment towards the actual covenant itself. God makes a covenant with himself to love his people. You can see this covenant portrayed all throughout the Old Testament, but one of the primary places it's established is in Genesis 15, where God covenants with Abraham, but he is actually covenanting with himself, as you see that he agrees with himself to love Abraham to set a people apart for himself and to make Abraham a special nation through which he will bring salvation to the rest of the world. It's a covenant God makes with himself. And this covenant is what frequently spares the Israelites. Because when they sin against God and they sin against his commandments, Moses reminds God of that covenant. Not because God's forgotten it, but because he's rooting his requests towards God in his covenantal love. If you read the entire Psalter, all 150 Psalms, one of the big dominant themes you'll walk away with is the constant praise of God for his covenantal, steadfast love towards his people. Not an emotional God, not a reactionary God, not moving and shifting depending on how we behave. Covenantal, rooted, steadfast, unchanging, or if you like the theological term for it, immutable. He is a God who is consistent, often despite how we behave towards him. And then this God comes into the New Testament and tells us for us to love our enemies. And what he means there is love in the way that I love, not in the way that you want to love, which is emotional, because if that was the case, we wouldn't be able to do that to our enemies. We don't feel emotionally warm things towards people that are our enemies. It's against nature. But what we can do is we can treat our enemies in a loving kind of way. Not in our natural state, but in our glorified 
in our self uh, or in our uh, sanctified state. We can, we can treat our enemies in a loving kind of way because we are dependent on God to do that. It is against nature, but with God, as he says, all of these things are indeed possible. So as we are imitating Christ and we are trying to live out this love, we have to understand it's not an emotional kind of love. The other image that might get drawn up when you think about love often in our culture is a reference not towards uh, an emotional kind of love, but it's a reference towards what we could also refer to as tolerance. We often think about love in terms of general tolerance or acceptance of things that are different from us. So we can describe someone as being loving if they are particularly tolerant of someone else's ideas, thoughts, or behaviors. We would say that might be a loving person. Or you could describe a Christian perhaps as tolerant or a Christian perhaps as loving if they accept a wide range of ideas and they don't actually insist on maybe one narrow kind of doctrine or theology. That would be a very loving kind of person. But tolerance is not the primary way in which scripture speaks about love as well. In fact, in the New Testament, love is not primarily modeled as tolerance. Love is primarily modeled as sacrifice, which means not everyone get along, even despite our disagreement. It means even if I disagree with you, I'll still die for you. And Jesus does this to his enemies. He doesn't primarily tolerate their behavior. He often isn't found opposing their behavior. Paul doesn't primarily tolerate his dissenters in the New Testament. He's usually found opposing his dissenters in the New Testament. But both Jesus and Paul and Stephen in the book of Acts are found not only disagreeing, but also dying for the people that they are trying to reach. Love in the New Testament is not tolerance, it's sacrifice. And if you tolerate something, it's really hard to sacrifice for it because you're not, there's nothing that you're risking to love that way. But if you disagree with someone, if you love them in that kind of way, it is often going to require you to sacrifice. It is often going to require you to put yourself on the line and risk your own safety, your own well-being, your own character, and your own reputation. That's what's at risk. And that is the kind of love that we are commanded to do in Scripture. We are supposed to sacrifice. And again, all of these things are not things that we are told to do in a vacuum. We're told to do this because Jesus Christ is the one who comes first and foremost to do it. And we are trying to imitate what Christ has already done. So when we think of the term love, we have to always think in terms of kingdom love or if you like biblical love. We want to try to define the terms in terms of how scripture defines them. As we live out this ethic, which is described here in these verses, and we're going to get into much more detail on that next week, what exactly it is and how exactly we do it. As we think about those terms, we have to always remember that when Jesus says, love your enemies, right at the start of verse 27, and again at the sandwich end of that passage, verse 35, love your enemies, he's primarily referring to how the Bible describes love. To be committed to them in a covenantal kind of way, not reacting based on emotions, not to tolerate your enemies and their varying beliefs, but to disagree with them and then go and die so that the gospel would reach them. That's the kind of love that is described in scripture. That's the kind of way that Paul calls us to love people who would disagree with us. If you think about the internal tension that Paul feels, he simultaneously would say in 1 Corinthians 16 that 
if anyone is an enemy of God, let him be accursed. And that same Paul writes Romans 9 where he says, the Jewish people, who are, by the way, people who would say that they hate God, at least the God that Paul worships, they, he would say to them, I wish that I was myself accursed so that they could know Christ. Same Paul, opposing and sacrificing. He has a heart posture of love towards people who are enemies of him, people who would imprison him and later see to it that the Roman government put him to death. Those are the kinds of people Paul is talking about. He's not a tolerant person by modern standards, but he is very sacrificial. He's not emotionally loving them because to do so would be suicide for him. He's doing so out of a covenantal commitment towards God. He is saying in himself that he is being conformed into the image of Christ to love people who hate him. So when we consider God's example, we consider Paul's example, we need to remember that that is the kind of love that should be drawn to our minds in Scripture. The other thing that I think is so important with these verses is this idea of seeking the benefit of those who hate us. The way the verses would say it is uh, in verse 27, it would say, love your enemies. And it describes on, it says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who would curse you. And pray for those who would abuse you. Now that should hearken you back to verse 20, all the way down to verse 23 of, Romans, or sorry, of Luke chapter 6 where we see that there's a group of people who is going to be scorned, reviled, and mocked for the sake of the kingdom. In verse 22, Jesus says this way, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Blessed are you. And then that same group of people who's going to be spurned, reviled, and mocked for the, for the sake of Jesus' name, he says to that group of people, Do good to those who would hate you. Bless those who would curse you. And pray for those who are going to abuse you. And once again, he doesn't say any of those statements in a vacuum. And to take those statements in a vacuum, to remove them from their context, would be to have an unlivable kind of understanding of what they mean. When we say bless people who curse us, or do good to people who hate us, or pray for people who abuse us, that's all in context of what he's talking about here, which is people who hate us, or curse us, or abuse us, because of our religious affiliation with Christ. If people would hate us for that reason, we ought to do good to them. If people would curse us because we are associated with Christ's name, we are to bless those people. And if people are to abuse us and scorn us, we are to pray for them. And again, this does not happen without example in scripture. There's examples to go around. And if you want such an example, you can read Acts chapter one, uh, all the way down to Acts uh, chapter 28. And you can see the example and the testimony of the church in the New Testament living these things out. The church that prays for the very same authorities that will beat them and kick them out of synagogues. The church that will pray and bless the people in towns before they go into towns. And then when they're kicked out of those towns by being stoned or dragged into public courts, they'll bless those people, they'll pray for them. In fact, if you think about a pinnacle example in Acts chapter 7, you get Stephen, who in his dying breaths, the words that come from his mouth is, Father, forgive them. God, forgive them because they're not aware of what they're doing. They're not aware of what's at stake. He's interceding and praying on their behalf, while simultaneously being put to death by those people. 
Again, in Scripture, these are examples that we are given, real historical events that model for us how we as Christians also ought to carry out this kingdom ethic. We are told to imitate Christ. That is one of the reasons why we even bother being loving in the first place. We're not doing it to be virtuous because it's not a virtuous thing. We're doing it to be imitators of Christ. The contrasting idea that is often brought up with these verses is what's referred to in scripture uh, and referred to by theologians as the law of what's called lex talionis, which is a fancy way of saying the law of just retribution. In the Old Testament, uh, this would be the, the law of an eye for an eye or tooth for tooth or a life for a life, a just kind of system of punishment, where when someone would curse us, we would have the right to then curse them back. That is the law of lex talionis or just retribution. And in these verses, Christ is laying out a different kind of ethic that Christians ought to do going forward. Now the question is, does that mean Jesus is different from Yahweh because Yahweh seems to prefer just retribution, lex talionis, and Jesus, in his teaching, in this sermon, seems to prefer this merciful kind of system that seems to go against just retribution. And if you think about that, you have to remember that we also have examples in the Old Testament of God showing mercy rather than a just kind of retribution. And not him only, but also saints who would go before us. You think about Joseph and the example that he provides. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. He's imprisoned on a wrongful charge of having an affair with Potiphar's wife. And he went rising to power and he has the exact opportunity to justly avenge himself, to do to his brothers what they did to him, or to do to Potiphar's wife what she did to him. When he has that kind of authority and that seat of power, what he does instead is he shows mercy to all parties involved. And he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. It is good. He, he shows mercy to those people involved. Joseph is part of the Old Testament, modeled as a kind of person who we all ought to imitate. And so this, this law of lex talionis or just retribution is not something that we ought to say was bad in the Old Testament. In fact, even that is a kind of mercy because it restrains human nature by saying that instead of when someone wrongs you, doubling down and getting back at them, it means just get exactly a justice from them. So that even in itself is a kind of mercy, but as Christians, we're called to something higher. We're called to something different. Not against just retribution, but a kind of mercy and sacrifice that is modeled for us by Christ himself. When he stands before his accusers, and he has nothing to say against their false accusations. And when they strike him, and when they beat him, and when they spit on him, he says nothing. And he ultimately allows himself to be killed and put to death by those people. Because what would be just in that moment would be for a perfect person not to be on trial. But instead, Jesus models for us mercy. And he does that so that we all would have an example to follow of what it means to show mercy. This is a kind of personal ethic, if you like. This is not something that we are told to hold governments accountable to. We are not telling governments to love their enemies, to do good to those who hate them, or to bless people who curse them. Government's job is to do what we would call just retribution, or lex talionis. It is the job of the individual Christian to model the kind of ethic laid out here. To give you a contrast from the same book of scripture, if you look at Luke 18, 
you hear Jesus describing an unjust judge and how he describes the judge as being unjust is by saying that he's the kind of person who doesn't fear God and who has no regard for man. And so he won't give the widow what's justly hers. He won't allow her to be righted in front of her accuser. That is an unjust judge, a wicked judge. So the government's job is to actually do justice in this kind of way. What the individual Christian's job is, is to seek mercy and prioritize mercy, not justice. Not because justice won't be done, but because we trust God for that justice. We leave it up to him. Again, this is why these verses are not virtuous. It is not a particularly virtuous thing to put yourself at risk all the time for no reason at all. In fact, people who describe these verses as a kind of virtue that we ought to live out as, you know, even if God doesn't exist, this is still a good way to live your life. That is, to put it in a very theological way, stupid. <laughs> it is not a wise thing to say to somebody. If there is no God who's perfect and holy and just, who cares for his people and who would protect them and who would see to it that justice is done one day, if there's no God like that out there, then all of what's laid out in these verses is complete foolishness. To love enemies is counter to what you ought to do. If there is no God, that is not a virtuous thing. But if God is real, if there is the God that scripture describes, if Jesus actually got up out of the grave and modeled for us how to do these things, then these become not virtues, but ways in which we imitate him. Again, they're, they're not good things to do for the sake of doing them. They're only good things to do if God is real. And so we have to understand these things in light of the fact that God is a real God, a transcendent God, who actually promises this kind of safeguard and this keeping to his people. He tells us not to worry, not because it's bad for us to worry, but because he's got it. He tells us to bless people who curse us, not because that's a good thing to do, but because vengeance is his. And he has forgiven us much, and so we ought to also intercede for other people. We are, as Christians, not striving to establish a city here on this earth, but we are striving for a future coming city. The way that the author of Hebrews would put it, and I'm just going to turn there to Hebrews 13. You can turn there with me if you'd like. Hebrews 13 is kind of the summary of the whole teaching of the book of Hebrews. And it concludes with some pretty striking verses. It moves from theology to uh, examples that we have laid out before us. And then in Hebrews 13, it kind of summarizes why we do the things that we do. And I'm going to start in verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 13. It says, So Jesus also suffered outside of the gate in order to sanctify people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside of the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here... On this earth, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. The author of Hebrews here is summarizing the reason why we do what we do as Christians. 
The reason why we go outside of the camp to bear the scorn and the reproach of Christ is because this world is not our home. We are sojourners and strangers passing through. We don't have an invested interest in this place, which is why we don't seek our own justice here and now. It's why we don't insist on our own way here and now. It's why we can pray for people who are against us and why we can bless people who would curse us because we're not seeking our own justice. The way Paul would say it in 1 Corinthians 6 when he's talking to believers, he would say, why would you rather not be wronged than try to seek your own justice? Because what you're doing is you're kind of completely ruining your witness to the Gentile community because you are trying to exact perfect justice in courts of law rather than just being wronged. It's better to be wronged, he says, rather than trying to vindictively get your own way. What he's not saying is it's good for you to have been wronged. He says, why not rather be wronged? Because you're testifying that this life is not the life that you're living for. You're living for some future reality that is to come. And the more willing you are to give up things in this life, the more likely it is that you actually are invested in that future coming kingdom. You're bearing witness to the coming world when you say that this present world is not where you have a vested interest in. And that's a very powerful kind of testimony that we have as Christians. Another uh, idea that's associated with this is the, the world of apologetics. Now, I mentioned that in this passage, the gospel is not explicitly presented anywhere. This whole passage is founded on the gospel, or else there would be no kingdom. There would be no way that we could do this well. But this kind of teaching that is found here is a kind of apologetic or a kind of witness or a defense of the faith that we would testify towards. And typically when you hear someone talk about how we would defend our faith in public towards non-believers, you would hear terms such as the classical movement of apologetics, which is a very lofty school of thought and it has to do kind of with uh, God being all-powerful and being the uncaused first cause and it is very theoretical and very theological. That is what is called classical apologetics. You also have a school of apologetics called evidential apologetics which has to do with the kinds of evidences we see here and now in this world that testify to a designer or a creator. The classical example of this is if you walked, up to, uh, you walked up to a watch in the middle of nowhere and you saw that watch and you examined it and you saw the beauty of its design, you wouldn't conclude how this watch randomly manifested itself here. You would conclude that there must be some beautiful designer behind this watch. It's called evidential apologetics. And we do this with creation and nature and the beauty around it. There's a kind of uh, apologetics that is, is rooted, and those both that I've just mentioned are rooted primarily in our intellect, how we understand God, how we understand the world, and how we argue from ideas towards the existence of God. These verses lay out for us a totally different kind of apologetic, what is classically referred to as the confessional apologetic. Confessional apologetics has to do with the life of Christ resurrected from the grave embodied in the church. As the church lives out its life, conducting itself in such a way that testifies towards the kingdom, it's an apologetic or a defense of the validity of what it believes. If Christians believe that Christ got up from the grave and that he offers newness of life to all people, then the church should live in a kind of way that testifies towards that. The church should be loving beyond reason. 
The church should be willing, as the confessional apologetics often points out, to, to die for the witness that it brings forward. To be willing to put their life down for the sake of other people so that the gospel could go forth. That missionaries be willing to go to places that would hate them and would kill them and would cannibalize them so that the gospel could reach those people as well. That the church of God would love one another so well and love their community so well that it testifies to the validity of all of the love that it talks about. They will know that we are Christians by the way we love one another. They will know that we are Christians by the way we love our enemies. They will know that we are Christians by our conduct. It's not the gospel, but it's a kind of defense of the truth of the gospel that is in many ways undeniable. If Christians do this well, then people can have their reasons against God. People might even have their apprehensions towards a God who is like the God described in Scripture. But there will be something so attractionally real about the power of the love of the life of the church that people will be hard-pressed to resist that kind of truth. As the way one Roman emperor put it with the early church, he said, we're so sick and tired of the Christians moving forward. But we can't stop it because the Christians love better than anybody else loves. When there are orphaned babies put out on the street exposed to die, the Christians keep taking them in and raising them as their own. And it's really hard if you're a Roman governing official to put down Christianity when that is the general conduct of the people in the kingdom. If they live in such a way that it makes it hard to deny the validity of their existence, it's really hard to say they believe some, some cuckoo stuff, that they believe some kind of crazy truth about a dead savior resurrected from the grave. Because they live in such a way as it's really hard to put that into reality. They love and they live in such a way as though it actually bears witness to the truth of what they're professing. This is the kind of way in which 2,000 years removed I think is the, is the kind of apologetic we really need to most recapture in the church. We have seminaries and we have theological schools and we have many people who love defending the faith from a standpoint of reason and from a standpoint of theology. But as a church, and, I, and when I speak about that, I'm speaking both as us as a church and the church at large in the West. I think we've really missed the mark when it comes to confessional apologetics. It is very easy, I think, for people to think of Christians and the first thing they conceive of is hateful or angry or bigoted or very insistent on their own way. But if we would be the kind of people who lived in the kind of way that's laid out in these verses, what a, what a powerful evidence of the truth that we profess to believe. If we loved one another like this, can you imagine someone walking into a community of church and seeing people loving each other like this? They, would, they might not know what to call it. They might not know how to put their finger on it, but it would be pretty hard to deny the tangibility of that lived reality. And can you imagine if you, in your office space, were to treat every single coworker in the way that's laid out in these verses? And you can just imagine the kind of powerful witness that will bear towards your faith. Now notice, again, I'm not saying that this is the gospel. What I'm saying is this is a defense of the gospel. It still requires us to preach the good news. It still requires us to call people to repentance. But I'll tell you this, in Acts, the people are way more ready to hear Paul's message when they realize he's willing to be beaten up and come back into the city for it 
than when they first just hear him talking. In fact, one of the most powerful tools that Paul has is when he's jailed and imprisoned, he doesn't scorn or hate the people who put him there, but instead at every opportunity that he gets to interact with them, he preaches the gospel to them and he tells them how much God loves them and how God died for them and how God offers this gift to them as well. And he says it while in chains by the to the same people who just beat him nearly to death. This is a kind of way in which Paul has a powerful witness Paul says it this way several times in the New Testament. He says, I, I bear actually on my body the marks of Christ. And I am in a real way bringing the gospel forward, but I'm defending the truth of that gospel in my very body. I'm bearing the truth of that gospel in my conduct and in my character. And while we as a church might have the gospel correct and we might have good theology, we can really undermine the truth of all those claims by our conduct as well. We can have a very poor defense of the gospel we believe if we have a poor conduct or a poor de demonstration of the love that we profess. If we say we follow Jesus and we are Christians and we identify with him, then we ought to love in the way that he taught us to love. We ought to live in the way that he taught us to live. And we ought to bear on our bodies the scorn and the shame and the mock of the world and even be willing to be wronged by one another so that we can show mercy and so we can testify to the beauty of the God who offers us mercy. Because as we do that, it's a powerful witness. It strengthens and it brings forward the gospel in force. And it's the kind of apologetic that is most needed in the church today. And if you're thinking about how you treat your coworkers or how you treat other believers or how you treat your friends or your family, and you think, man, I've really fallen short of the list provided here. The good news of that is that this is not a test and once you take it, if you've passed or you failed, you're good to go. This is the lifeblood of the Christian. It is the kind of way in which we are constantly called to live, which means you can pray and you can ask God to help you to live this way. And if you're a Christian, you ought to be hitting your knees every night if you're short of this standard and asking God to give you enough grace so that you can testify about the truth of the gospel in your workplace and to your family and friends. Because it's not just about theology, it's not just about us knowing the gospel ourselves, it's also about us bringing that gospel forward. We are told by Christ to make disciples of all nations, which means not only proclaiming the gospel, but also living in such a way as that gospel is hard to deny. And if we do that well, imagine, church, how the gospel would go forth. The gospel went from 12 fishermen deemed unintelligent and uneducated by all the people around them and the way in which they were willing to put their life on the line and stick their neck out. The terminology became so synonymous that it was the blood of the, martyr is, the, blood of the martyrs is seed for the church. They were willing to die for this message. They were willing to live in such a way as it's hard to deny this message. Even if we, we don't know about that resurrected Christ, they live in such a way as that it's really hard to deny that they believe that Christ is resurrected. And that in itself is a kind of defense. It's a kind of witness. And I think, arguably, it's the most powerful witness that we have. It's the one that's most lacking. It's the one that's most tangible. And it's the one, I think, that's most impervious to attack. If you do this well, it's very hard to undermine that witness. You can debate at infinite with people who would disagree with you evidentially on apologetics or who would disagree with you on classical apologetics or would disagree with you in all other manner of defending the faith. But if you live out your faith well, 
it is going to be difficult for someone to try to undermine the truth that you proclaim. Because your defense is your continued character and conduct. The way the church witnesses to its belief in the holiness of God is by itself walking out and living and growing in holiness. The way the church testifies to the love that God has loved it with is by loving its neighbors and loving one another in such a way that actually says, you know what, they might be onto something there. They might actually believe what they say they believe. And this church is what I'm calling you towards as well. Not you in exclusion. I mentioned myself in this group as well. I mentioned how earlier this is a, a series of verses that I feel like I fall so far short of. But this is something that we have as an opportunity, low-hanging fruit, for us to go and bring the gospel to the nations. And the good news is it doesn't require study in a seminary. It doesn't require additional time reading systematic theology or watching long lectures. What it requires is these verses put into practice. Now that might be harder than all of the preceding things I just mentioned, but it's way more accessible also because all it requires is a willingness and the spirit of God and you're good to go. And that is what we are going to be called to in the next couple of weeks. That's the beauty of why we were preaching through this book verse by verse because it's going to call out things in us that are uncomfortable and even difficult for us to hear. And that's good because that's places for us to grow as well. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, you are so kind to protect your church, to love her well. Lord, you laid your life down for your bride. And Lord, would we, your people, live out with bold conviction our faith to bear true witness about what you've done to proclaim in our bodies and in our conduct and in our interactions with others the, the validity of what we profess. Lord, would you help us by your grace to do this well? Lord, if any of us fall short of this standard, and indeed we all do, would you give us grace to see how? And would you give us more grace and your spirit to walk with us in carrying these things out? Lord, we are, we are so dependent on you for these things. We cannot do this on our own power, by our own spirit. Our own sinful nature hates the idea of doing this. So Lord, would you please give us grace to live this out? Lord, we ask and we pray these things, not because we deserve it, but because Christ earned it. Lord, we, we bring these things before you. Amen.